This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hello, guys. It's MMA fighter Chael Sonnen. Check out my podcast, You're Welcome, with Chael Sonnen every Wednesday and Friday right here at Podcast One. We cover the latest in mixed martial arts and everything else going on in the world of sport. Listen free to You're Welcome with Chael Sonnen, exclusively available at podcastone.com and on the Podcast One app. If you love the show, share it with a friend and leave us a rating and review. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Dan Feldman of NBC's Pro Basketball Talk. Like me, somebody who covers the entire league and also focuses a lot on the salary cap in the offseason. So he and I bounce between the playoffs and the offseason a lot, sometimes changing based on a team situation. You know, we talk a little bit about Celtics, talk a lot about the Sixers, and the general contours of 2019, including some of why 2020 changes that approach. Really good conversation brought to you by Yahoo Daily Fantasy. You can use that pod 25 promo code for $25 in free play on your first deposit. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. You can check that out on basically any device that you can watch streaming video on. BetOnline.ag, use that podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. And TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car. Conversation runs about an hour 10. As I said, we go in a lot of different directions, so I, I think you'll really enjoy it. And we challenged each other a little bit on on the things that we disagree on, and there are definitely some in this offseason. And we talked about some things that haven't really been discussed as much, like which teams we think might screw this whole thing up. And I thought that was fun. So that's towards the end of the podcast. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Always hard to do these in the playoffs due to the timing stuff, but that's why I, I want to keep this a little bit more general. We're recording this on, on Thursday afternoon before the two Game 6s, and I guess where we start is when you when you can't go nitty-gritty, you go a little bit big picture, and what have been your takeaways, if any, from the playoffs so far more broadly? Well, I, I think it, it's that the Warriors are not invincible. They're still really, really good, uh, but they're not invincible. Um, and that the Bucks are more versatile than we knew they would be, maybe thought they could be, and that's a big deal because they've been the best team throughout the season, and their weakness was supposedly that they're not versatile enough. I guess the other one is that they, they don't have quite the usual amount of talent for a championship team uh, in spots two through three, four, exactly wherever you want to draw that line. Uh, but their versatility, they've answered that call, and I think that's a big deal. 
I think that's a big deal, too. And whether the impetus was Eric Bledsoe or Budenholzer or anything else, the Bucks going to a more switchy defensive system, it stymied the Celtics, which was interesting because, I mean, yeah, yeah they, there were some stats like synergy and all that, that they had been an, oh, an ineffective isolation team, which I find really interesting. I might delve into that during the offseason, depending on whether their personnel stays the same. <laughs> it might not necessarily be relevant. But I, I thought that it, was it could it could be relevant for for the Nets or Knicks and and that and uh, that whatever team that is. Sure, sure, that could absolutely be the case. And the best defenses have to be a little bit pliable, and I think that's one of the differences between. And I'm not criticizing Utah, but like between Utah and some of these other ones, is that Utah pretty much runs their stuff, and Rudy Gobert is an amazing player, deserving Defensive Player of the Year. But they can't go into a lot of this stuff, and not all that's Gobert related. Some of it is just they don't have switchy players one through four particularly. I mean, Jay Crowder can do a little bit, but and Donovan Mitchell, I think when he gets a little bit stronger, will be able to do more of that. I mean, he defended. I still remember him defending Jason Tatum well in summer league his rookie year, both their rookie year. And that versatility is really useful. We don't know who, at this point, who Milwaukee's going to be facing in the Eastern Conference Finals, much less if they make the NBA Finals in the NBA Finals. But being able to do their system, you know, the drop back and test everything at the rim, but then also go into other approaches will be incredibly important because some teams force you to do things you don't want to do. Right. And I think, to me, the big difference between the Bucks and Jazz is to me the idea is if you the Bucks can, and the Jazz can both for the most part against most teams play the way they want to play they can stick with their base style and it's going to work but if you want to go far enough into the playoffs eventually you're going to run into a team where you have to adapt and the Jazz I just never saw as that team where you're looking at a deep playoff run as something so important this year as, as a real attainable thing. Like, if they got lucky and got the right matchups, they could do it. But I wasn't looking at it as, oh, this is the year. The Bucks, it's different. The Bucks we looked at going into the playoffs as a team capable of going very deep in the playoffs. And so that's why I, I think it matters so much for them. Another big picture question that I've been grappling with, and hope that I would have a more definitive answer by this point, is whether this new generation of centers will be viable in the playoff circumstances. And to be plain about it, Nikola Jokic has been awesome. He's been fantastic, mm-hmm. especially offensively. Defensively, a few quibbles, but overall, I think he's done fine. And Joel Embiid has been battling just myriad ailments, some of them injuries, just also some the respiratory illness and all that kind of stuff. But you could see the marked difference between Philadelphia when he's on the floor versus when he's off. And I mean, that was the same was largely true with Jokic. That's why he played so many minutes towards the end of that Spurs series and memorably in the four overtime game. So those are tentative signs in the positive. But it's also important to note that other than Philly with Toronto, and that series has been an anomaly, partially because Joel Embiid just hasn't been healthy enough to give it a full to give it a full shot. But we don't really have the the data that mattered most to me, and so it's not. I mean, you can draw a line of playoff teams, sure. You, yeah, Denver. They even though it took them seven games, they beat San Antonio. But really, what I've been looking for with this center question is how they fare against the best of the best, and. The Nuggets haven't played those teams yet. They might make it through this round. They, they might do it in the next round, depending on how all this works out. And the Sixers still have an opportunity to make the Eastern Conference Finals. They, we could see a little bit more in Game 6 and theoretically 7. But 
I think we're leaning closer to, like, like, yeah, they can stay on the floor in most circumstances, but I still want to see, like, can Jokic survive against, let's say, the Warriors or Rockets? Yeah, and I think those are two very different questions, whether he can survive against the Warriors or Rockets. Uh, At least maybe they would be if the Warriors had Kevin Durant, because the Warriors are just a way better team. There's less margin for error. Um, I think maybe a couple years ago we really hit this inflection point where some teams figured out how to play any center off the court, and some of those teams with centers just had no idea how to counter that. But I think we're hitting an equilibrium now um, where centers are more used to having to play that way. Their teams are a little quicker to adjust. Uh, sometimes that means just taking them out of the game, but I think a lot of times it, it means running things differently, like we're talking about with the Bucks switching more, even though that's not necessarily Brooke Lopez's forte. He was ready enough to do it a little bit. He did it enough to help the Bucks advance. And I, I think we're really hitting an equilibrium point where centers are good enough, and the league is also, I think, really stacked with a lot of good centers right now who are just talented players who do different things, do it in different ways. But when you're talented, sometimes you can, in a crunch, when you need to apply your talents in different ways. And this this whole fear of, oh, centers are, are going to become obsolete, I think we've moved past that. I would agree. And there is a threshold question, and I think that that threshold is, is going to be high overall. And, and what I think is going to be interesting is how, if, let's say, Jokic and Embiid can stay on the floor if they can, if you can't play them off do you counter that like Portland has by largely staying bigger and they tried that approach of of Alfrukaminu guarding Jokic in I believe that was game game 5 and just got absolutely crushed because Jokic is is really good he's also a massively large human being also Paul Millsap did work on Ennis Kanter so I I think that is going to be compelling as well and it also ties in with Another important takeaway that I've had from these playoffs, and I'll I'll use the Sixers to frame this, that you could pick a series of other teams, including the Warriors, of how important it is to have functional, capable depth on your team. And so with Philly, to me, that's the difference between having James Ennis and not. Not that James Ennis is like the cure-all or anything, but capable players who are not easily attacked or exploited are incredibly valuable in the playoffs. And part of the problem that the Warriors have been having is, even before Kevin Durant got injured, they didn't have enough of those guys. That's a great point, that in the playoffs, with those level of players, it often becomes about... You know, do they have weaknesses more so than their strengths in general? But I am going to quibble slightly with the 76ers example, and I think it works with the Raptors too. I think sometimes, a lot of times, we read too much into small samples. I was watching a lot of the series, and I'm like, wow, James Ennis is playing awesome. He has been so good for the 76ers. I'm saying, man, Fred Van Vliet just can't get it going, can't make a shot. He is, he is really hurting the Raptors. And then I try to peel back a little bit about why. And I think some of it is just make or miss league. It's not all of it, but I think that's some of it. And Ennis was knocking down shots at a rate that was unsustainable. And Fred Van Vliet was missing shots at a rate that was unsustainable. And I think in the last game, you saw that somewhat even out. And I think over a larger sample, it would too. Uh, and so part of this, I don't know, I don't know what lesson to take from this. I don't know, how, or at least how to apply it if you're building a team. But I think you get in the playoffs, you have these limited reserves that's probably inevitable. Is there something, do you just hope to have enough of them that you can have, uh, you know, throw out, find a couple who are, 
who are playing well at that moment for whatever reason, uh, who feel confident. Sometimes this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Or do you just say, throw up your hands and say, hey, we shouldn't worry too much about these reserves. They're limited players. Some of them will have it going in the playoffs when we need it. Some of them won't. Let's just hope and pray that we have the right ones at the right time. That's an interesting question. And some of it gets down to spending power or financial flexibility too, because I mean, like, it's amazing how well PJ Tucker has played in these playoffs, especially in the Warrior Series, but he did a, a very nice job against the Jazz as well. Most teams didn't have the wherewithal, flexibility, whatever, or, or the confidence to give PJ Tucker a four year contract. That fourth year was lightly guaranteed, but that's still really important. Warrior had a vision, you know, going after the Warriors. I think the Rockets have done a great job. PJ Tucker has been key there. But, you know, Tucker's even, a, he's not a low reserve. He's he's a high reserve. He's been starting, you know, obviously for, for a lot of this year due to the absences that, that the departures that Houston had this year. And a totally fair point with, with Ennis and with Van Vliet. And that's why I try to boil down, I guess some of this is by watching games as closely as I do for the NBA cast because you're trying to make points and you're trying to, you, the running commentary part of it, you're trying to find things to talk about. Mm-hmm. And... What I've noticed with Van Vliet, your point is valid that, you know, missing shots he normally makes. But I try to look at, especially in the early part of a game or the early part of a player's minutes, the quality of looks, not only that they are taking, but that they are generating. And what has concerned me about Van Vliet in this series in particular, but he struggled against the Magic as well, Magic, very capable defensive team, is that he's not creating the separation necessary to build those good looks out. And so, yes, he will make more shots than he has, but... I would expect his, you know, field goal percentage or the team's offensive rating, however you want to calibrate offensive success, to go down. And some of that is playoffs. You know, team, that generally happens. You know, teams have their better defenders on the floor. The teams that make playoff runs have better defenders on their roster. But there is a line for players, and I would say this applies. Granted, he had a brutal matchup with Marcus Gasol, but with with Vooch and Vooch, like Demar Derozan in years past, what they do functions a lot better when they have physical advantages that they might not have night in, night out in the playoffs because of these selection pressures that come into building a playoff team. Ah, that's a that's an interesting way to frame it. And thinking about Van Vliet, maybe there's some of a corollary with that of he he doesn't he doesn't have physical advantages, but he is often uh, maybe he often enough finds times he's not too disadvantaged. I mean, one thing that has stood out to me as sustainable in this series is he there have been times he just looks too small defensively that 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 is a problem, and maybe he can just avoid that problem often enough. Maybe he just ran into a bad matchup, but maybe there's something to uh, the phys- you know, players who either need a physical advantage or just need a physical draw like Van Vliet. They can't find that often enough in the, in the playoffs, especially deep. Still plenty more to talk about with Dan Feldman, but first a message from Yahoo Daily Fantasy. It is one of the best times of year to be a sports fan. The NBA and NHL playoffs are in full swing. Major League Baseball and golf are starting to pick up as well. And if you want to get closer to the action, Yahoo Daily Fantasy is for you. They offer single-day and week-long contests so you can pick a new team every day. And Yahoo Daily Fantasy has the lowest management fees across the industry. So you don't need to play with other sites that charge high fees just to play. Yahoo's lower fees mean more prizes for you, the players, to win. To get started, go to yahoo.com slash dailyfantasy and find a contest that's right for you. Try a 50-50 contest where half the field wins, or you can try Yahoo's innovative quick match feature where they will pair you with another player of your skill level. 
You can play a quick match contest for free or for cash, but the best part is there is no management fee. You will keep 100% of your winnings. Or you can play for larger prizes and bigger bragging rights in a guaranteed prize pool contest. Whichever thing you want to try, use the promo code POD25, P-O-D-2-5, for $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. Soon you get to playing, soon you get to winning. So you go to yahoo.com slash daily fantasy to start playing today and use that POD25 promo code. Also have a message from Pluto TV. Pluto TV is the leading free streaming television service. You can watch over 100 TV channels and thousands of movies on demand, all completely free. And what I like best about it is that Pluto TV never asks for a credit card and you do not even need to sign up to watch for free. That makes it the easy and completely legal way to watch your favorite TV shows and hit movies for free. So what are you waiting for? Never pay for TV again by downloading Pluto TV. You can download it for free on all of your favorite devices, including your phone, Roku, Amazon Fire, Apple TV, Smart TVs, PlayStation, and anywhere else you stream. Pluto TV, leading free streaming television service. The other part of that, and this is something Matt Morris talked about on this show in, in prior years, even beyond this, and it's come up with the Celtics, but a couple other teams, is the idea of an effort disparity. So he brought it up in prior years, though it didn't necessarily come true this year, with the Boston Celtics. And the Celtics being a, a hustle team, being an effort team, an execution team. And that those elements first of all they weren't really in play this year for a bunch of different reasons else they missed a ton of shots in the series but I mean, i'm just so i'm so glad you mentioned the celtics i'm just giggling as you explain this thinking about the celtics and yes those celtics but and, please and, go on i'm loving it and so the idea is that in the regular season there can be a meaningful competitive advantage through continuity effort and execution you know system buckets through getting to loose balls and actually giving a blank on defense all of those things are aren't consistent and whether it's travel schedule or cohesion or injuries or everything else like regular season teams also just the supply just having a bunch of bad teams in the league you can make some real hay while the sun is shining in those circumstances but once you get to the playoffs those advantages really tone down because everybody's engaged also the tactical stuff you can you can get into adjustments and so sometimes the teams that have good schemes can make good tactical adjustments it's not always the same and so those players, those teams, who that's ha- that's the clearest way that they succeed, those advantages recede more than the teams that do it through talent, that do it through execution. And I've used the term undeniability a lot in the past. And those advantages don't really go away. And for me, this is a big part of why LeBron James has been such an unbelievable playoff player over the years is that it's so damn hard to take away what he does well. And the team that fit the description uh, of those the, the hustle, sound defense, low mistakes type of play this year, the very most was the Indiana Pacers, and they got swept in the first round. So I think that there's a lot of support to that theory. Well, and I would also add in the Utah Jazz as being another example of sure. that. And they they lost in five games, and it was you know, and, and they got they got worked in a couple of those five games as well. And it gets into something I, I've been writing about this a lot in my offseason previews. I'm actually working on Portland's in preparation for them possibly losing the game to, losing the game tonight, and then it running probably on Friday at the Athletic about defining success. And there are many people, and there are no real wrong answers here. I I believe that there are some that are wrong adjacent, at least. But (laughs) there are some who believe 
every team should be championship or bust all the time. And if an owner, in some ways, it doesn't matter if it's rational or not. If an owner believes that, you go with it. But there are teams like the Jazz, like the Portland Trailblazers, and a slew of them around the league where, yeah, if you can get that player who makes you a championship contender without having to sacrifice everything else, you know, if you can get James Harden without having to give up everything, if you can get Kawhi Leonard without having to trade away your entire franchise, by all means, like that, that's a completely separate question. But I don't think there's any shame whatsoever in being a reliable playoff team when, you know, getting, you know, ideally you can host a series, maybe you win a series, maybe two, depending on if the bracket breaks the right way or everything like that. And some teams can move beyond that. You know, that, that could be you, get, you have good draft picks or you do that. And it's not necessarily mutually exclusive. You know, you could be sitting there and saying, oh, well, I'm going to take a risk-free, low upside pick in the draft because we can't win a championship. No, it's not necessarily things like that. But it does affect when you spend and how you spend and what you prioritize with your mid-level exception, all those sorts of sorts of decisions. And I'm very interested to see how those franchises, the, the Pacers are probably in this group as well, how they approach such a wide open offseason. Do they go big? Do they go small? What do they see as their timetable? You know, like the Jazz, they could largely keep the band together if they want. They could also go in a really different direction. And so I'm really interested in seeing how all those things work out. You know, I'm just looking through the the final standings, and I'm not on the fly comparing year to year, but it does seem to me that more teams met what I would consider success for them this season uh, than in a typical year. And I'd probably put the, you mentioned the Jazz, to me they're probably right around the line, I'm not sure which side you put them, of, you know, should they feel good about what they accomplished this season? Uh, you know, there are plenty of teams that clearly should and plenty of teams that clearly shouldn't. And then to me, the Jazz are kind of like, hey, you could argue either way. And it makes it interesting to, to think about what they'll do this summer because that is going to be a response to whether they're happy or unhappy with what they accomplished this year. Right. And another example there is the Orlando Magic. I, I brought they should up, be happy, though, right? Oh, I think they should definitely be happy. But how do you interpret that happiness into contracts? Does that right. mean well, that's, yes. if you're happy with that, does that mean you give Vooch four years at whatever wage is negotiated? <laughs> or does that mean you build around Aaron Gordon and John Isaac and maybe eventually Mo Bamba? And that's a really big challenge. You know, again, that's ownership is important here, the direction of the front office, because you, in their circumstance, and, and this is where contracts come into play, the rubber meets the road at some point, and usually that's when you have to make long-term financial commitments. And so another example there, again, thinking back at the Blazers, because I'm writing their off-season preview, is Damian Lillard being eligible for a Supermax extension. And this would be the more the John Wall style, and I'm sure that's going to make certain people in the Pacific Northwest queasy. The idea being that it's it's four years of max money added after two more years currently under contract. It is not the three extra years that's, that you can get if there's only one year remaining on your contract. But with Lillard, that's a big question, not only for the team, but also for him. Because if Lillard signs that contract, should it be offered, he is committing to the Blazers or to Blazers' control for the remainder of his prime. And 
players have the right, they have the agency to do what they want, to prioritize what they want. And Lillard in particular, you know, we haven't really seen that because he signed a big, big extension, justifiably so, as, you know, when he would have otherwise hit restricted free agency. But if, if he does this, if it's offered, then he really functionally never hits restricted free agency and is either on the Blazers or whoever they trade him to for until his early 30s. Yeah, so I I asked uh, Dame late in the season, you know, if you make an all-NBA team, do you expect the Trailblazers to offer you this contract, the extension this summer? And he said, of course. And I said, would you sign it? And he said, we'll see. I didn't really want to get into that. Um, I'd be shocked if they don't offer. I mean, you say if they do, you say they've got to evaluate whether they should. I agree. I, I think paying anybody that amount of money, there's, as John Wall shows, there's a lot of room for it to backfire, and they should think more carefully about doing it. I just think the dynamics of the league, there's almost no way that they wouldn't. Um, and Dame Lillard is different than John Wall because there is a complication. He's going to make an all-NBA team this year. He'll also be eligible for the extension next summer. He can get the five-year extension. If you wait, you never know what's going to happen. Uh, Lillard could change his views on Portland. The Trailblazers could change their views on him. Uh, I think people in Portland should know a very classic example of this. I truly believe that if LaMarcus Aldridge could have signed a fair value contract extension going into his last year in Portland, he would have. I mean, he talked a lot about doing it. I, I really do believe that he would have. Just the cap rules, he wasn't allowed to. He would have had to take a pretty big discount. Wasn't willing to do that. Uh, I think had the intent of, let me play out this contract and then I'll resign. Well, throughout that season, things went a little sideways and he decided to go to the Spurs. A lot can change in a year. And so there, there are no guarantees. And if you sign Willard to this, there's no guarantees it's going to work out. It's going to make it hard to build a supporting cast around him. But Willard is also somebody who has repeatedly talked about how loyal he is to the Trailblazers, wanting to spend his entire career with one team. And some guys say that when asked. Sometimes guys kind of hint that way. He has said that more strongly uh, than maybe any other star in the league. And given everything else we know about Damian Lillard, his, his maturity and how how uh, thoughtful he is, I think he's really thought through whether he believes this. I, he doesn't strike me as somebody who's going to put an egg on his own face by reversing course and just leaving and bolting. Um, maybe a little different than Kyrie Irving, who went out of his way to say, yeah, I'm going to resign with the Celtics. But the more we've learned about that, it seems he didn't fully think that through before doing it. And it's going to make it, if he leaves, it's going to be a little bit of a stain on him that he could have avoided. I think Lillard knows he could have avoided saying how much he wanted to be loyal to Portland unless he truly felt loyal to Portland. That's a fair point. And something else that he should be considering is that theoretically, let's say he wants to secure the money but still have the door slightly open to play elsewhere, there is a third path, and that is, we haven't seen this yet in in the current CBA, which which established designated veterans, designated, you know, designated rookies were in the prior CBA, is the idea of signing this extension but and, and a player who does so cannot be traded with or without their consent for one year, meaning 12 months, not a league year. Theoretically, Lillard could sign this extension this offseason. Same rules apply next year as well, just a year later. And then if he decides then to play, that he wants to play elsewhere, as long as that contract is a positive value one and the Blazers don't want to just be like, hey, you're under contract, we're, you're going to play for us, he could theoretically maneuver his way elsewhere 
at some other point in the future after that year elapses. Now, John Wall does not have the cachet to do that, especially now that he's hurt. And a lot of the other guys, you know, their teams are really competitive. I wonder whether players, because they try to be optimistic, they try to be in the moment, will consider that possibility of, hey, if we start the clock on this year, then if, let's say, the 1920 season doesn't go as anticipated, or even the 2021 season, and that's when CJ could be an unrestricted free agent, he could, CJ can do whatever the hell he wants. He's, as of this moment, not eligible for a designated vendor extension. I'm guessing he won't ever be. So, but he could sign a normal extension, he could sign, re-sign as a free agent. Maybe Lillard sees things differently at that point, and while Kyrie Irving and Jimmy Butler and DeMarcus Cousins and all these other, Paul George, by being traded, they foreclosed on the possibility of a 35% max before their 10th year of experience, Lillard could theoretically have his cake and eat it too for a couple of years. Well, he he can't have all his cake and eat it too because Correct. if that's the move he because if that's because it he requires pulls, consent of multiple teams. Well, well, what I was gonna say was it would be to me and I a great cost um, to his reputation because he has gone out of his way to say I want to be with the Trailblazers the rest of my career. I'm you know a one team kind of guy. He has gone out of his way to say that. Nobody forced him to say those things. He said them. He chose to. And so if he goes that route, if he says, let me get my money and then if things don't work out, get me out of here, that would be a a huge hit to his reputation to me. And that's why I tend to believe, because he's such a level-headed guy, that that's not how he'd want to go. I I think he has, I don't know, but I think he has thought through the ramifications of if I go out of my way to tout my loyalty to the Trailblazers, that's going to make me look really bad if I ever say I want to leave. And so I'm only going to do this if I'm really sure that I actually want to stay here long term, regardless of some things that could be going on around me. So something I, th- I find interesting is that your your acknowledgement, concern, however, of a player's reputation, I think is is stronger than I would do, but I think players are closer to your line of thinking than mine. My general belief is that as long as you leave for a suitable situation and find success there, a lot of that stuff becomes more like Twitter hate than like losing shoe sales, losing jersey sales, all of those sorts of things. It doesn't, it impacts your brand, but it doesn't like affect your Hall of Fame case. People will be mad, but you're also creating new fans in the new place that you are. However, I fully acknowledge that I think more players think the way that you, that you have talked about on this podcast than I do. Well, let's talk a little more about Kyrie Irving kind of as the <laughs> other side. Because to me, look, it, here'd be my advice to Kyrie Irving. If you're not happy in Boston, leave. If this is not the situation for you, it is not worth wasting years in your career being with the Celtics just because you said you, you were going to resign. Like, yes, it's going back on your word and that stinks. What you really should, my original advice would be don't say this unless you're absolutely certain. Unless you love being with the Celtics so much that, that you, there's no foreseeable adversity that could come during the season that's going to change you on that and it clearly did because Kyrie went from I plan to resign to ask me July 1st so whether he ends up resigning or not he has clearly wavered more than he would have more than he indicated he would you know before the season so the, the big thing is think these things through before you say them and I I gotta believe that Lillard has 
I think that leads us into uh, another, not a big picture playoff thing, though it heavily relates to it, that I wanted to talk with you about, which is what makes this 2019 offseason special? And one of the easy things is just the confluence of a lot of talent and so many players hitting free agency, ballpark at about half the league. We'll see with some options and some non-guarantees and everything like that. But another part of it is... This is a loaded, unrestricted class and a comparatively weak restricted free agent class due to a bad draft class and due to extensions and everything else. So what I find notable, compelling about that is unrestricted free agency, by and large, requires both player and team being sufficiently on the same page. Some negotiations are easy, like it sounds like. Steph Curry's with the Warriors back in, like, right as the new CBA opened up. It looks like that was pretty straightforward. Others really are not. And it is fun that a lot of those guys are still in the postseason. Kyrie Irving, we just talked about him. Jimmy Butler, Kawhi Leonard, Kevin Durant. And the idea of both player and team having to commit to each other, having to say this is the right path, not because that's how you get a contract signed, but because either one not feeling that way leads to something totally different happening is huge for this offseason and to me makes it that the sands, the dynamics, the landscape will change on a dime a series of times. Yes. Um, I think generally, and you know, there are always exceptions, you don't always know who they are, but I think generally players are more likely to resign the better their team does. And the team is more likely to want the player back the better the team does. So playoffs are always high stakes, but these years are even more high stakes because I figure can't know for certain what's in the mind of any of these players, especially Kyrie Irving. But I figure the fact that the Bucks beat the Celtics means Kyrie Irving is now more likely to leave Boston, and it makes it more likely that Chris Middleton, Malcolm Brogdon, Brooke Lopez, and Nikola Mirotic are back in Milwaukee. Not that any of those things are locks, but it just nudges all of them in that direction. Right, and unrestricted free agency doesn't happen that often for players. I mean, you go through generally the first eight years, it could be seven, it could be nine, without having much control over what team you go to other than if you like restrict your medical records or something like that. And players owe it to themselves to make an informed and honest decision. I think that's an important part, and I credit... LeBron James and Kevin Durant for really doing this, that, yeah, both of them faced absolutely massive backlashes for what they did, but it does seem like they were honest and straightforward about and chose the team that they wanted to be with, not because of loyalty or because of branding or because of anything else. It was like, whether it was, I want to win a championship, I want to be on a team that plays differently, whatever there. And considering how short these players' careers are, how short their primes are, I honestly, you know, I I care what they prioritize because it affects my job and it affects my life. But I'm happy that we're getting to a place as a league where players don't have to stay in bad situations because they said they would or because that team happened to have the right draft pick in the right year years before and took them without their without any real consent in the process. 100% with you. And I do like, I mean, I, I do think it's good that the incumbent team has some advantages uh, in the term, in the type of contract they can offer, longer contract, higher raises. But it's not so much that the player feels like he can't turn it down. And so, yeah, give him an advantage. And, uh, you know, if, if the player's on the fence, maybe that put those advantages push him back toward his incumbent team. I, I do think it's 
it's good for the league and I enjoy it more when, when there is the, the identity of a team that can be built over years by retaining players. But it's also very good that the players ha- have the right to leave that team at a certain point too. I, I think the NBA generally, tell me if you disagree, is getting pretty close uh, to striking the right balance there. There's different ways they could tweak things, especially with the, the Supermax contracts, but just the, the general idea of that balance I, I think is pretty good right now. Yeah, I would say that it is. To me, the biggest change that needs to happen actually does not relate to star players as much, which is fixing the extension system for guys just below that. And for me, if a team is going to have the ability to give a guy a max contract through full bird rights at the end of that contract, then they should be able to to do an extension at that amount. Maybe you don't open up the Supermax, obviously, if if they're not eligible. But, like, let's say... Draymond Green, I think, is a good example here. Or there's so much. C.J. McCollum is a good example, too. That because of the league's rapidly rising salaries and just the timing here, I understand that the league wanted to kind of prevent, uh, protect owners and general managers from themselves. But I think it's, it's leading to some negative outcomes, both for players and teams, because players who would like the long-term security, who could line things up but aren't good enough or successful enough or in very very narrow cases just voted highly enough to make that <laughs> to make that opportunity and for me if if both sides player and team want to make a deal happen other than like circumvention or you know some of the underhanded stuff i'm all i'm all on board for allowing them to make it happen well one i think some of a lot of this is going to take care of itself um because they're because as salaries rise, then more players will have a high enough preceding salary where you can build a, a viable extension off of that. And if the league was heading this direction in hindsight, really when they signed the new CBA, for players who signed before the cap spike, maybe there should have been some type of, of greater allowance for an extension because that's what it's going to look like in coming years once everything stabilizes. You could have just fast-tracked it a little bit. So somebody, for example, like Kyrie Irving, whose salary this year was too low to build an extension off of because he signed his contract before the new TV money came in, maybe there should have been a rule saying, hey, on that one, you can – I don't know whatever percentage you'd want to make it, but it could be a higher percentage uh, of his previous salary for his first-year salary in the extension. Uh, but that will take care of itself because Kyrie Irving's next contract will be big enough that if his team wants to sign him to an extension uh, next time, that would be viable. But – I don't know how good of a thing that is. There were, before the NBA really tightened extensions and then loosened them back up now, there were too many bad extensions where where a player made some noise about being unhappy, didn't really have the leverage, and so to create leverage just kind of made things tough. Uh, Richard Hamilton with the Pistons is is the example I, I think of, and or at least there was the threat of it. And you run into problems where, where these players decline, whether it's because of aging, injury, uh, the team sign, there'd be a lot of times where a team would sign a player to extension coming off the player's career year that maybe isn't sustainable. And you get to a point where player salary is not closely tied enough to player production, where you just have too much dead money. And I think that's bad for the system. It can create problems, especially when it doesn't sound like the league wants to bring back the amnesty provision and it, it can be abused, it can be overused and, and there were, would be modifications that I would make if they ever brought it back. I'll probably write about that at some point. But 
not right now because we're in the CBA, so it doesn't really matter. Where where I want to go, and I and I I think your points are well founded. It's it's just striking that balance is really hard, and there is no perfect solution because you're you know it's kind of like the idea of whether you want false negatives or false positives. I would generally prefer to have more guys get paid, even if it's overpaid, than just hit free agency and all that kind of stuff. But that that's me, and that's my personal opinion. Still more to talk about with Dan Feldman, but first a message from betonline.ag. We're in the beginning of May, and the excitement of sports starts the month in a huge way. You have baseball playoffs, NHL playoffs, baseball, and more. There's a ton of action, and there's only one place that has you covered, betonline.ag. Sign up today for a free account at betonline.ag and use the podcast1 promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. Still have a little bit of time left in this second round. The Bucks have moved on, but as I'm recording this, the Western Conference is still wide open, and Philly, Toronto still going at it. In the East, could have some awesome Game 7s. I'm hoping that we do. But then you have the Conference Finals, and I'm really excited about that. And betonline.ag is also fascinating because you can do in-game betting. So if you think that you know where something is going, even if maybe you didn't at the start, you can engage at that point too. So you can go to betonline.ag, use the podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus, or you can text BETNOW, B-E-T-N-O-W, to 238-669. Either way works, whatever makes you happy, and it's a great time to do so. So betonline.ag, podcast one promo code. Also have a message from TrueCar. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you cannot put a price tag on your stories, now with TrueCar, you can at least find out what your car is worth when it is time to sell or trade it in. Just go to TrueCar, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much it dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you are finished, you will get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So, when you are ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCar today. True cash offer? Not available in all states. Going back to the idea of both player and team having to turn their keys. Some really interesting decisions this year. The one that I've been thinking about the most is Jimmy Butler. And why Jimmy Butler is, to me, more compelling than a lot of the other ones is because it seems like there are genuine reasons why both sides could or should want to come back together for next year. And there are plenty of reasons why either side would or could want to go in a different direction. Yeah, the Jimmy Butler one is, is I agree, the most fascinating one. Um, it probably hasn't gotten enough attention how much Jimmy Butler has buddied up to Joel Embiid throughout these playoffs, uh, going to Joel Embiid's press conferences and, and sitting next to him. You know, the, the one that everybody saw the video of, uh, of he's, you know, he said, why are you up here? A reporter asked, and Joel, uh, Jimmy Butler said, oh, to protect my big man. Uh, and then Joel Embiid said, yeah, some, they made that 3-1 Warriors joke and Jimmy Butler stormed off like, I tried to protect you, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Um, but the other night, uh, Jimmy Butler, and I, I don't know if I've ever seen this, Jimmy Butler did his post-game media in the locker room. He wasn't one of the players selected to go up, uh, on the podium. And then after finish, finishing talking to reporters, he went up to the podium with Joel Embiid. He got a question or two while up there. Uh, but he was already, he could have been done with media. Almost every player when they're done with media is thrilled to be done with media, isn't looking to do more interviews. 
Jimmy Butler did that just to cozy up with Joel Embiid, who's the franchise player who the owners love. And if Joel Embiid wants Jimmy Butler back, you got to think Jimmy Butler is back. Right. And Butler, in my eyes, and I could be wrong here, even with the the drama in Minnesota, and it sounds like some drama in Philadelphia as well, I don't think he's going to be struggling to get max contract offers from other teams. You know, the three plus one or something of that ilk. That contract is so much less of a commitment than a five-year max or something close to that from Philadelphia. That and there are so many teams that are star hungry. I, I even if some of them it might that you know it's more of a short-term play than anything else. I think that it's a worthwhile gambit for them. So I don't think he's doing that necessarily in terms of leverage, that kind of leverage. But of course, what an ownership is willing to pay and when they're willing to do it is exceedingly important. And the reason why Philadelphia's situation to me, is is so fascinating, is also the idea of their own expectations. So, theoretically, it's different than, let's say, Brooklyn with D'Angelo Russell, though there are some similarities there, and some of these other ones, because if Jimmy Butler leaves, basically, without too much heavy lifting, the Sixers could get to a max slot. They could... And for at least for the non-ten-year guys, if they and if and sure, if Kevin Durant says he wants to go there, you you make the other moves happen together. It's not that big a deal. But so then you're starting to get into this question, and Intel is an important part of this, and just expectations. Well, what would Philly do with that max space if it was offered? Can they get in the conversation for Clay Thompson? Can they get in the conversation for Kemba Walker or any number of these people? And so that's one big question. And then the other one that I don't think my guess is Philadelphia's front office will be talking about enough this summer, but I think they should be, is defining their core. So is this a Joel Embiid-Ben Simmons team? Is this a Joel Embiid team or something else? Because those two definitions lead to very different futures for Ben Simmons because I don't think Simmons and Embiid are a perfect pairing. I think that there are some weaknesses there which are hard to reconcile. There are scenarios where you can say, it's a Joel Embiid team, but Ben Simmons is the best that we can do for that role, and we can't get, you know, we'll get three quarters for a dollar for him in a trade, something like that. But this is the year for Elton Brand and their front office to have that, and ownership, more importantly in some ways, to have that conversation because Simmons is extension eligible, this is his last year on a team-friendly contract for a while, and also, if you are thinking about going in that direction, then that totally changes the way you think about Jimmy Butler, totally changes the way you think about Tobias Harris. Well, I think it affects Jimmy Butler probably the most because he's the oldest. To me, the big question is really Joel Embiid's health. Because I think on paper, Tobias Harris, Embiid, and Simmons are young enough that you don't have to answer that question this summer. That you're, you know, who is the, what is the core of your team? What is the identity of this team? Because on paper, they're, they're young enough. They're adaptable as they grow or not, but you can let that play out. Maybe you want to be proactive and get ahead of it. There's definitely nothing wrong with that. But if you don't, ha- you know, what that would mean is trading and beat or Simmons, probably it would be Simmons. And so it obviously depends on what trade offers you have, whether you want to be proactive. But I, I generally feel like, you can delay that decision on paper. But the 76ers should have a lot more information about Joel Embiid's health. And if you're worried that he is not going to remain this this dominant center as long as 
you might think just looking at his age because of his injuries, because of the wear and tear on his body, then yes, I agree. You've got to assess that this summer. How would you approach it? I've been thinking about it myself. For me, I think that if if you can get reasonable value for Simmons, I would probably go in a different direction because his limitations could moderate, could could mitigate a little bit over time, but I don't expect it to. I think that his jump shot is going to be a limitation for a while, and, and he can be impactful defensively. I think that part he can really grow. He's had some nice performances this year, just as he did his rookie year. But the the challenges of having Ben Simmons, a guy who needs the ball in his hands to be valuable, and Joel Embiid, I, I just don't think all of those can ever be straightened out. And so if another team can give you close to commensurate value, I seriously consider doing it. Yeah, I like Ben Simmons a lot more uh, than you do, uh, a lot more than Nate does, um, but I'm on the same page. That I, d- I just think there are too many diminishing returns between Simmons and Embiid that aren't going to clear up anytime soon. Um, I, I don't have much faith in Simmons developing a reliable jumper. I just, I'm just a little higher in the other aspects of his game. But if... if you know, again, it's, it's Embiid's health, which is just something I can't know enough about. But, it, you know, if you need to be better soon because you're worried about an expiration date on Embiid, I do think moving on from Simmons makes a lot of sense. Uh, one, because of, like I said, the the fit. And then, two, because he's such a young player that you can probably get somebody who's not as young but maybe better right now and a better fit. So that, that'd be the trade-off. It'd be for a team thinking more long-term if you're thinking more short-term. Now, if you're thinking long-term, if you think Embiid can hold up over many years to come, then it depends on the trade offers because even though Embiid and Simmons are an imperfect fit right now, maybe you can figure something out over time. Players adapt. The hardest thing to do is assemble these real, a team of these really talented players. And, you know, at a certain point, you just might have to say, all right, we've got the talent level that we need to compete. Uh, let's just hope they can figure it out because, you know, that's, that's often the most teams can do. Right, and that's the real downside risk of going hard the other way and selling and, and trading off Ben Simmons is there's a very distinct chance that you do not get a player as good as him again. And the financial elements of this are, are what they are and all these all these other things. And also think about what you have to replace if Ben Simmons is not on this team anymore. You need somebody to really run the offense. I think they could do more pick and roll, but you need to get that guy. And this is really their opportunity with cap space and everything else to do it. There aren't that many players who fit that bill on the market, and I'm guessing Kyrie Irving probably is not going to end up in Philadelphia. So then we're talking about a small group of guys. And if you don't get that player this summer, Philadelphia doesn't have as many draft assets moving forward. They gave up some of those to get Tobias Harris. They're also a very good team, so their own picks are not going to be super valuable. So maybe you get caught in a different kind of lurch, which is that even though Simmons was imperfect, he's still a whole lot better than what you end up with. Uh, let's talk about a subtexas, and I have no inside information on this. I'm just looking at the circumstances where we know that Joel Embiid is, is kind of the favored player, and it's exactly what we're talking about with Lillard. Ben Simmons, this is the last summer for him to get traded and still be eligible for the designated veteran player contract if he makes an all-NBA team down the road. 
does he say, you know, let if this isn't going to work out, let's do it now. Don't don't trade me a year from now. Even if they even the 76 are willing to give him a max contract extension because they just believe, you know, he's worth it and would still hold trade value on that. Maybe Simmons says, let's let's, you know, if you are not committed to this, move me now to a team that that might be willing to give me the super and able if you move me now to give me the super max 4 years from now, 5 years from now. Ooh, that's interesting. And 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 it makes some sense and I I've said before that players who are really kind of thinking the long game should go in that direction because getting moved before you are on your on your second contract is extremely beneficial. And it's for for players that good it's also very hard to happen in season. It could theoretically happen, but I wouldn't expect it to. But mm-hmm. so, yeah, if you if you think that your situation is untenable, or could be untenable, maybe you push the envelope a little bit and, and try to set it up. And that could be about capacity to give a guy a designated rookie, designated veteran extension. But it could also be, I want to be in a situation where I would want to sign that contract should I be eligible. And and yep. may, maybe that's the, the, the movement point here. And and this is, you know, this would be an unintended consequence of the Supermax, but it's not one that I, I think would come up often. And this would be a rare circumstance. Now, you might have times where the player might be a little antsy and thinking about it. I don't know exactly what was going through Carl uh, Anthony Towns, for example. I don't know what was going through his head last summer, whether he had any desire to move on from the Timberwolves while well, he could still be set up for that. But the Timberwolves weren't going to move him. He was He's their most valuable player. They're building around him. So I think it's going to be rare where you have the combination of a player who might not be happy where he is, uh, where the team might be willing to move him, and where that player is good enough to be thinking about making an all-NBA team in a half a decade. But Ben Simmons might check the, all those boxes. It's far from certainty, but I think he does. And it wouldn't surprise me if, if he were thinking a little bit longer term, partially because the Sixers team is very young, but also because it seems pretty apparent that he is not the centerpiece and that Joel Embiid is. And <clears throat> teams can have multiple centerpieces. It, it, there are a lot of examples of that in NBA history. And not every circumstance requires one guy sacrificing to play kid another, but it usually ends up hitting hitting an inflection point at some juncture. And so, yeah, if, if you don't see it that way, or simply put, if what Ben Simmons wants out of his NBA career is something different than what Philadelphia can offer. Maybe he wants his own team. Maybe he wants to be the definitive piece, or he thinks that Philadelphia, do, because they're so locked in for all intents and purposes after the summer to what they are, that he he can look three to four years out in the future because damn near everybody on this team is going to be under contract for that period of time. Yeah, you know, I, absolutely. I mean, I, if, I, if I'm Ben Simmons, I'm thinking about these things now, and he's not going to have perfect information. He doesn't know where the 76ers are going because the 76ers don't know where they're going. They have their plans, and he should assess what those are and the likelihood of all these things you're talking about. Uh, so there's a lot for him to think about, but he he's going to have to make a decision with very imperfect information. One other thing I wanted to talk with you about, you and I, through the mock-off season and numerous other things, part of what the purpose of that exercise is, is to kind of see the market for various players and also try to game out incentives and incentive structures for teams. And it's a very useful thing. I, I love doing it. It's fortunate that people, other people enjoy it as well. But I haven't gotten all the way into the mindset yet, but what I've been trying 
trying to think about a little bit is separating out what I think should happen with what will. And so what I'm trying to get at, I've mentioned Orlando earlier in this podcast as an example here. Are there teams that you think or expect are going to make mistakes, like misidentification <laughs> mistakes this offseason? Because it's very different in 2019 than it was in 2018 because there are so many players available. There's so much money that teams can spend. And so that creates, you know, this isn't as crazy as 2016. And I mean, franchises like the Portland Trailblazers are feeling the effects of 2016 more strongly, arguably now than they did in the, in the first couple of years after those contracts were signed. So whether it's in the near term or the long term, are there any red flags that you're seeing? Yeah. I mean, it's the, it's, but it's going to be the same teams that you'd be alarmed about. You don't even have to look at the roster situation. And then once you do, uh, for a couple of these, it gets even worse. Uh, the Lakers, why would I have any faith that they're going to handle this right? Uh, the Kings have earned a ton more benefit of the doubt than they had before, but not Complete benefit of the well, doubt. I mean, not even remember close. they gave and Zach they just Levine, for Harrison Barnes. Remember they gave Zach Levine that huge extension. And granted, Levine has looked better looked better in the eighteen nineteen season than I expected. Still, not a positive value contract to me. Not even particularly close, especially when you consider what a team needs to be around Zach Levine in theory. Like it's just it's just a strange concept. That's part of mm-hmm. why I think he's overvalued. So like Vlade does get benefit of the doubt. He also like just fired his coach and, and hired Luke Walton. So the, there are a lot of reasons to believe that there's a little bit of pyrite instead of it being gold in Sacramento. But I would love to be wrong. I would love to have this be the beginning of something working out. But I think Sacramento is a good model for the type of situation where this can happen. And so for me, that is a front office that may be feeling more urgency than they probably should that Check. that could interpret the successes that they had this year as more permanent and less ephemeral Check. And, and so like for me yeah Sacramento is a good one to bring up but the one that I'm more worried about is Orlando and well, we'll, just, we'll just just real quick on the Lakers and Kings before we get into sure. the magic I brought those two up in particular because I think it's so important as somebody who just enjoys watching basketball, the Kings were my favorite team to watch this year, my very favorite, even ahead of the Bucks, who had number two. They were just so fun. They played fast. They played hard. They were all over the court. It would really stink if they screw up that identity and this the track they're on. I love watching LeBron play. It's so fun. It would really stink if the Lakers screw it up and you don't get to see LeBron in the playoffs again. Like I think these are high stakes. The Magic... If they do it right or wrong, it's going to matter, right? We'll evaluate it. We'll talk about it. But the difference in watching Magic games either way isn't going to be huge. I would yell at you about your disrespect for Jonathan Isaac, but no. I mean, (laughs) and and a lot of that relates to guard play, primary ball handler stuff, is that Orlando, DJ Augustine had a wonderful year. I don't want to obfuscate that at all. But it's a different thing. And that gets into the team, the, the other team that I haven't discussed that I'm genuinely scared about, and that's the Atlanta Hawks. The Hawks were my favorite team to watch in the second half. They have some signs of being much better in the future. Also, Atlanta, they have another warning sign which can happen, which is a cogent rationale behind spending because this team needs help defensively. And so it's entirely possible that like a player who could help them could be available at a price point that they can pay. But I still think they're a couple years away from figuring this all the way out. And I don't think they got enough information this year to figure out exactly what John Collins is. So they could end up in a circumstance either by 
drafting Zion or the right player saying yes at a reasonable price where they don't have to make a challenging decision. But I'm a little bit concerned, despite, you know, Schlenk playing the long game here overall, that they could see, hey, look, we have all this enthusiasm. We had a good second half. They beat the Bucks twice, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> they they see that and go, well, if we can make the playoffs, look at how bad the bottom of the East is. Like, we can make the playoffs and we can do it. We'll still have money to spend. This team is not going to get expensive for a long time. Let's just do it. And it only takes one, unless your owner is really willing to pay the luxury tax, and even in that circumstance, as we've seen from Portland, it can be a problem. It only really takes one bad contract in the 10 to $15 million range, much less like a $30 million boondoggle like Chandler Parsons, to completely sidetrack your franchise. Very true. Um, but there are ways around it. You know, um, There was a report a while ago, I, I think it was from Sam Amick of The Athletic, and I, I wish I knew for, for certain that the Hawks are really only going to go after free agents if they can get a star, a real difference maker. Now, where they draw that line might be different than where you or I would draw that line. And also, that was before they uh, ascended as much as they did late in the season, and that could change their thinking. Um, but, but there are ways to do it in the right way. I think a really good example was the 76ers signing J.J. Redick. The 76ers hadn't been any good at that point. They were hoping to ascend, and it was such a good thing they did sign J.J. Redick because he was a big difference maker. Like, we didn't, we hadn't seen it yet from the 76ers. They hadn't played well yet, but they had these talented young players that seemed like it was only a matter of time, just like it does with the Hawks, and we just didn't know how long it would be. And the 76ers are way better off because they got Redick. They also signed him to a one-year contract. So if they weren't ready, if it wasn't going to work, they weren't stuck. Now, they had to pay him more in that year to do it, but like the Hawks, they had that money to burn. Uh, I, it would be disappointing to me, and this is a very delicate line to walk. It'd be disappointing to me if the Hawks, uh, Sign somebody who's an expensive player on a long-term contract and he doesn't work out and it becomes a, just an albatross on their books and it delays or, you know, inhibits their growth long-term. It would also be disappointing to me if these young Hawks are ready to take the next step next season and they are one veteran they could have had away from actually being a good team. On that point, it'll be notable to see if and who would be willing to take a one-year contract after the dust settles with the main guys. Now, inevitably, Mm -hmm. even though there are more max slots than there are max caliber players this year, so that means some guys are going to get overpaid, there are also going to be players who slip through the cracks. And especially because the Hawks can offer playing time, I think that can be a persuasive argument to a group of players who think, I can get more next year. I mean, an example here could be somebody like Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. There were more complicated circumstances there in play with clutch sports and everything else. I'm thinking more actually about KCP a year before, but it was largely true last year as well. But I wanted to get to another team that concerns me, not necessarily because I think they'll screw it up, but because they... Oh, then you're not thinking... Uh, you just, you just, with what you just said, I'm thinking of one more team to talk about, too, and you already eliminated my team. So okay, go so mine is the Dallas Mavericks. Mm-hmm. And yep. the Mavericks, they don't have the proof of concept yet, but they have a pretty narrow window. It could, theoretically, they could slide their money to 2020. They can't really go beyond that. But who they get, who they pick will be very important in terms of their watchability and in terms of their eventual ceiling. And it's so strange to have those high-leverage decisions before you've seen one of the members of your core (laughs) play on your team, period. And it's not Mm -hmm. even like 
let's say Zion Williamson, where he's just been in college and you're, you're trying to figure that part out. Porzingis tore his ACL a, almost a year and a half ago, and he hasn't played since then. I have an expectation of where he'll be. I mean, I happen to be uh, outstanding outside of the locker room when he was talking about Porzingis's recovery and that they were very positive about it and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the, I worry a little bit that they're going to see the, the the money will burn too, too bright a hole in their pocket. And the right players are probably going to say no because they have so many good offers. This is not a year where you have, like, I don't know why I'm thinking of Al Horford, but Al Horford. And he wants to get paid, and it's kind of like Dallas. I'm kind of thinking maybe like, so Al Horford was choosing between, the last time, between Boston and Washington. Now, that and looks Oklahoma like, City, right? And Oklahoma City, before everything happened there. And so, sure, it looks a little bit weird and laughable and all that now, because Boston, even, even with their current foibles, is still a markedly <laughs> better situation than the Wizards. But I don't think Dallas, they might get in the room for a couple of guys, but I don't think they're going to get into serious contention. And then how do they react to that? And what do they think makes sense around a Luka-Porzingis pairing? I- I'm really interested, and because we don't have as much information, I don't have as strong an opinion, though I'm sure there are players, like if we hear rumors that I won't like. However, I will say that with <laughs> the reporting that, that they're interested in Kemba, totally on board with that. Sure. Um, other than the, other than some timeline issues, but in terms of fit and basketball, it'd be awesome. Well, there are timeline issues, and because we haven't seen these players in action together with, with Luca and Kristaps, I'm not 100% Kemba's the best basketball fit, but I generally think the odds are good enough, and he's such a good player that just do it, right? Like, it might not work, but you're the Mavericks. It's, it's a use-it-or-lose-it scenario with a lot of this money. Uh, and so if you can get somebody of Kemba's caliber – or Chris Middleton is the other player they've been linked to who, who I think would clearly be a great fit but probably won't leave the box. Uh, if you can get somebody of that caliber, just do it. They're probably going to have to make some tough choices among players a peg below. Right, and that ties in with another huge storyline that I will repeat in even after people <laughs> start getting mad at me and saying you're talking about it too much, which is how bad the 2020 free agent class is. And you don't talk about it enough. It is so important in terms of team building, and they're an example. The Brooklyn Nets are an example here of these teams that can choose, and maybe the options for them this summer happen to be uninspiring because the best players chose to go elsewhere, which is entirely possible if not probable. But the market next year is just so unbelievably terrible. Now, if, if there's certainly for a few teams. Oh, the Lakers are another example here. Uh, for a few teams, maybe if Anthony Davis, and I think this is unlikely, ends up in a place that he doesn't want to be, you roll the dice there. But if we're looking outside of AD, I'm going to give you some of the unrestricted, because restricted guys aren't going to change hands if they're actually good. Some of the unrestricted guys that I expect, the best unrestricted guys I expect to be in that class. Anthony Davis, if he doesn't if he doesn't resign. Draymond Green at 30 years old. Derek Favors at 28. Are you going in order? Yeah, I kind of am. Please tell me Derek Favors is not. I know it's bad. Please tell me it's not. Derek Favors is the third best. Well, I mean, so you have Mike Conley. If he if he Mm, if he opts out of his ETO, Kyle Lowry at thirty four years old on the wing, thirty one year old Danilo Gallinari, Otto Porter if he opts out at twenty eight at twenty seven years old, 
Fournier, if he opts out, and I don't think he's going <laughs> to opt out. Like, here, I'm just going to read Eric Gordon at 31. Like, it, Drummond, if he opts out at 26. Jeremy Grant, well, if he opts out well, at 26. I think I'd rather have Eric Gordon than, than Favors. So so maybe it's Yeah, not, yeah, but like, what I'm Favors saying is, is like... third best bad, and Conley, although who knows if he'll be there. Yeah, no, it's bad. It's, it's really, really bad, and... Especially because some of these teams, I've just mentioned Brooklyn and Dallas in particular, they're young. What you, what mm-hmm. you notice from that group, there not only are there not really many players that are that with upside there, but when you look down, and I'm not going to run through the whole board here, at the players who are going to be there, who are going to be on the market, you don't see a lot of guys who you expect could have a breakout year. So, like for example, like. Solomon Hill is going to be in that class. I like Solomon Hill. I, you know, I, I was more enthusiastic about the contract he signed than I probably should have been. But I don't <laughs> sit there and go, he is going to blow up. He's going to have an awesome year, and and so we'll be looking at it. Same kind of thing with Mo Harkless. I like Mo Harkless. I think Mo Harkless is a good player, but I don't see like a twenty million dollar a year guy busting out of of that. And it's even a pretty uninspiring restricted class too. But again, I don't think that matters because those players aren't going to change zip codes if they're good enough to get a significant offer. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, there will be somebody who breaks out who we don't see coming. I know, I know the candidates look down. Somebody will, but there'll also be somebody we expect to be pretty good in that class who uh, slides. And so, I don't know why we'd look at that as anything but evening out. So who, who is the other team you were thinking about? Um, oh well, so you eliminated when you said I'm not expecting them to to get this wrong. Your whole I don't know how we haven't talked about it yet because your whole question of you know teams in this situation who could mess it up was built for them. Really, the only catch is you can't say could mess it up. You can only say almost definitely will mess it up, and that's the Phoenix Suns. Oh my, yeah. I mean, I I just I think my my read on them is that they don't have enough flexibility to catastrophically screw this up. They can partially screw this up, to be sure. Fair. They'll screw it up as much as they can. I mean, James Jones is already talking about, you know, we need veterans, not draft picks. You know, draft picks aren't ready to play in the NBA, though. That's not what we're emphasizing anymore. Now we're emphasizing players in their primes. Yeah, and play- which means paying as much as you can for them. Not only that, but you think about the possibility of who they can get. And generally speaking, because periodically the the topic of a hometown discount comes down and so that's you know a player taking less for a positive situation for playing time purposes or for loyalty or team competitiveness the suns have none of those advantages <laughs> so presumably they are going to be they're going to need to be overpaying for somebody and so if he wants a veteran somebody's going to see you know going to be flo- by floating to the metaphorical stake because why not i mean we kind of we kind of saw Trevor Reza do this. Now, what do I think the rap, the Rockets should have signed him to the exact same contract? Sure. Yeah, I think I think they would have been better for it. It would have cost Tilmer Fertitta a lot of money, but it would have made them better. And we'll see. I mean, it, it could be crazy how this works out that the Rockets end up like making the NBA Finals despite losing those guys, and I'm sure some will call that vindication, though there are way more complicated forces to play. But you're right to bring up the Suns because – 
they also they have this kind of underratedly perilous part where because all of their draft picks other than Devin Booker who's already on his new contract their high profile draft picks happened after the new CBA when draft picks started getting paid more money so for example in the 2021 season Josh Jackson and DeAndre Ayton will both be on rookie scale contracts and they will make a combined 19 million dollars that's a good point it's a yeah. lot harder to, to to cultivate value when you yeah it's great to have a bunch of high draft picks and high draft picks ideally will outperform their their contract value but you don't get that like if you want to go to like the in the NFL having a starting caliber quarterback on a rookie scale on a rookie contract or numerous other things in the NBA all of those become significantly harder if your rookies cost a bunch of money especially when you're also paying TJ Warren 12 million a year. Yep. Uh, you brought up uh, Trevor Ariza, but Tyson Chandler did it. Jared Dudley did it. I mean, this, this is the, the Suns are like one step ahead of the Kings, where where players have only used the Kings for leverage. Uh, the Suns they take the contract. Well, they don't let, necessarily... let, let, let me push back on that a little bit because Zach Randolph and George Hill both took the contracts too. That's true. That's true. And the then Scott Perry got the and Kings, then Scott Perry fair. got the hell out of Dodge, which was genius. Like, if you can ever pull that off to leverage people mistakenly thinking you had a good offseason before they know that you actually find out that you actually didn't, do it. Do it, do it, right. do it. Right, yes, yes. It's not just that he helped us bring in these players on those contracts and then got out of the dodge. He used those contracts to sell himself. That was like his big point is look at, I got these guys on these contracts. It's yeah, great work if you good, can get it. Good, good luck to the Knicks if they don't get the no-brainer stars. Oh, man. Well, and, and also, thinking about will they be able to identify appropriate fitting talent? This was a big problem we saw with the Lakers last year. And let's say the Knicks do get big targets. They won't have a lot of spending power. They will have a lot of similarly sized, you know, like minimum contracts and all that fun stuff to throw at players. But... They will have really high stakes on that because Durant, Kyrie Irving, let's say it's those two. It, does, it might not necessarily be, but let's say they do get those. They're not going to be super patient with this either. Now, I assume that they're not going to sign one plus ones. They could, which would be really fun, especially <laughs> considering how Kevin Durant has handled that this year. He's just like with the, with the New York media, which will be a lot more pressing than the Bay Area media has been as much as it feels like they've been pressing to him. But – Remember, the, the I, I had so many issues with what Perry did as the Kings decision-maker, or one of the decision-makers, in not only in terms of the money they gave those guys, but in terms of the process behind it. Zach Randolph on that Kings team was never going to work. Like, this was not a circumstance like Gordon Hayward on the Celtics, where the theory on it was sound, he just got fluky hurt and it didn't work out, or... The team changed around them, and it, it just didn't make sense. Zebo on those Kings was always going to be a failure. George Hill, other than how great he looked in this series against the Celtics, that fit never made particular sense. And so it's it was it was jarring. Not only that people praised as much as they did because that was bad, but the the theory of those moves to me was always really fraught. And so now that person is going to have higher profile, higher leverage decisions to make. Yep. Yeah, a hundred percent. Anything else you want to discuss? Well, there's there's a lot going on right now. 
I don't know how many thoughts I have left on just the hilarity that is the Lakers coaching search. Oh, God, search. that's right. Well, and you might not get to use all your stats about about co- teams hiring coaches, three coaches in a row that have played for the team that played for the team. Unless the Lakers hire Kurt Rambis or dig up some other ex-Lakers player. Well, Shaw. But, uh, well, well, here's the problem with Shaw. Well, Shaw's already on staff. While the Lakers front office, maybe this was just Magic Johnson, uh, but I, I don't know, maybe it was Palinka too. Some, the Lakers front office as an entity was telling Luke Walton, your coaching staff isn't good enough. You don't, you need an experienced coach on the staff. As if Brian Shaw weren't there. How disrespectful is that? Now I do think Luke Walton needed a better coaching staff and having Brian Shaw is no shining accomplishment, but man, that is rude. So we're all in agreement that it should just be Slava Medvedenko that takes over the job, right? Love it. And then I can publish my article about the last time a team hired three straight former players of that team because the Lakers would be going uh, from Byron Scott to Luke Walton to Medvedenko. It was the Seattle Supersonics uh, with, I think, Bob Weiss, Nate McMillan, and Paul Westfall. A lot of research went into this article that nobody will ever read. Unless Slavon Medvedenko gets the job. Uh, another research point that you had that I, that ended up being more well-founded than I think some people thought was the road team blowing out the home team in a game one. And so there was was it four times before this year that it had happened in the la- in the recent in recent vintage and in all four sequences the road that road team that won the blowout lost the series and so you're I'm sure you were I only saw part of it you were inundated by Celtics fans at that <laughs> juncture considering how well they played and everything else and as is always the case with with online criticism they don't really circle back to go oops my bad like that ended up and not even that you were making the statement like oh the bucks are going to win the series because you you didn't do that but it's interesting right now right the common response from the Celtics fans was like oh man we really messed up by winning by so much if we had won closer we'd be better off cuz the game one winner usually wins and sure that is a conclu- like a conclusion you can draw what i think the conclusion smart people drew was don't overreact to one game. And as we saw, unless you're Paul Pierce, that would have been the correct choice. Is it weird that we're really not talking about what Cleveland's doing at coach? Is it just because they're going to hire some assistant and it's probably not going to go some crazy direction? You, you know what the problem with the Cavs coaching search is as far as getting attention? They're interviewing too many people, which I think is very smart and absolutely what they should do, and I'm praising them for that. But, but you know, for what I do, right? I, we're gonna anybody who's a coaching candidate for the Lakers, we're gonna write about because they're the Lakers. Uh, but they're also keeping their pool kind of tight. You can get a grasp of well, who and, the candidates are. And, the and, and all, you have to, all you had to do was watch basketball in the early 2000s, and you probably had a sense <laughs> of how that person was as a coach. <laughs> yes, yes. The Cavs are just interviewing so many people, you can't even keep up with it. So many different assistant coaches. Um, it's the right process. I think it, it's one that gives themselves the, gives them the best chance of finding the right coach. Um, I'm very interested, actually. I'm, if we're going to talk about their coaching search for a second, I don't think this is who they're going to hire. I'm surprised that J.B. Bickerstaff is the candidate because this is just not usually how it goes. I wrote something when the Kings hired Luke Walton that he had one of the worst tenures just by one loss record for a coach who immediately got another job. Um, Bickerstaff's record with the Grizzlies was far worse. And 
The other big difference, Bickerstaff is, uh, Bickerstaff is black, Walton is white. White coaches get more, more leniency, they're quicker to get second chances. Uh, so for Bickerstaff to be a candidate for that, if they hire him, that would just go against a lot of norms the NBA has had for a long time. I'm just interested. I, I, like when you said that, I wasn't shocked by it at all, but have you done any digging in terms of the, like, the preceding success having an effect, like skin color being a, being a predictive factor in terms of whether somebody gets another job? I have not gone through, uh, from that way, that in depth, but one thing I have looked at is, um, coaches who've only gotten one tenure. Um, you know, because so often you see retrays, you see coaches get a second chance. So I didn't do it by record, and there's you know there's so many things to control for. But I did just look at coaches who got hired as a head coach once, and that was it. They never got a second chance, uh, and that list was disproportionately black for sure. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder if that would be something that that people could go through in terms of trying to figure out. I mean, and as you said, there are so many other factors in play, whether it's performance relative to expectations, talent level. Whether there's a person, I mean, the the Vlade Luke Walton connection because they played together and played in the same time in the NBA, all those sorts of things. But yeah, I, I would be interested in that. But either way, thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Dan Feldman for taking the time to come on. You can read him at NBC Pro Basketball Talk. You can follow him on Twitter at Dan Feldman NBA, D-A-N-F-E-L-D-M-A-N-N-B-A. It is really hard to do these during the playoffs unless the series sync up and happen to sync up with the day that people are free with podcasting. Not only is that in terms of just getting the narratives down, but also people's timing because a lot of folks are flying around to different games. I do not travel at least during this part of the playoffs, so it makes it easier for me, but sometimes it can be hard for my guests. Really happy that Dan had the time to come on. He has a lot going on at the moment, as one would expect for this time of year. I have a couple ideas for next week. What I'm guessing, I have two different threads. What I'm guessing, depending on how the lottery turns out, is that I will do one next week and one the following week, just depending on what happens, guest availability, all that fun stuff. So you can keep an eye on that. That is a great reason to subscribe and download every episode because I don't know when it's coming out. I don't know when my guests are going to be available, when I'm going to be available. So that's why you do that. And also, you can spread the word in a bunch of different ways, word of mouth, and by leaving a rating and review. It's great if it's in Apple Podcasts, but I totally understand if you use a different player and want to write a review there. I appreciate it all the same. And if you want to be super awesome, you can leave a review both places. You can go into Apple Podcasts and leave a review and then do one in your player should you have a different one. As always, if you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, the best way to reach out to me is NBA at gmail.com. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. I am, this is a terrible time for me to respond, but I read everything as it comes in. There's a separate folder in my inbox for that sort of thing. So I make sure to go through all of that. And I forgot to mention this when we were talking about the ways to support the show, but the single most important one is to check out our sponsors, Yahoo Daily Fantasy. Use that POD25 promo code for $25 in free play. When you make your first deposit, Pluto TV can check it out on so many different devices, a lot of content that is there that is free and you don't even have to sign up, which is fantastic. BetOnline.ag, use that familiar podcast one promo code for a 50% welcome bonus. 
and TrueCar, great place to sell or trade in your car among all the other wonderful things that they do. So as I said, I don't know exactly what the battle plan is for next week. I have a couple ideas and I, I think those ideas will all happen on Real Jam Radio. They just might not all happen next week and we'll see what people, I'm really excited about it. One of them is in particular is really cool. It's something that I know that is coming out that is not public at all yet. So we'll, we'll figure all those sorts of things out in time. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. Thunderstruck. Adjective. Shocked and amazed by the power of fun on Carnival. Riding Bolt, the world's first roller coaster at sea, Brian got thunderstruck so hard, his 93-year-old grandmother felt it 3,000 miles away in Nebraska and immediately booked a cruise. Hooray! Get Thunderstruck starting at 289. Carnival. Choose fun. Cruises are in U.S. dollars per person, double occupancy. Taxes, fees, and port expenses additional. Restrictions apply. Full details on Carnival.com. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. You want to go. Yes. Go travel. Go explore. Go find a new city. Go reconnect with friends. Go have fun. That's why we created OnGo, the trusted rapid COVID-19 self-test. OnGo gives you accurate COVID test results and peace of mind in just minutes. So anywhere you go, you know. You'll know if you're COVID-19 free. And you'll know you're protecting loved ones. OnGo is readily available at letsongo.com, Amazon, Walgreens, or Walmart.com. Use promo code ONGO15 for 15% off at letsongo.com today.